According to legend, sometime in the mid-1800s, a group of men led by Miguel Peralta were hard at work chipping away at a rich gold mine owned by the Peralta family. The mine was located in the Superstition Mountains of Arizona, a stretch of rocky, arid desert mountains just south of the center of what is now Arizona. These mountains, as we will find out, are pretty appropriately named. But we'll get to that. The Peralta mine was a very lucrative one, tapping into a rich vein of gold just a few miles beyond Weaver's Needle, a popular landmark in the area formed by a massive rock column poking from the top of a mountain. The men had been working for several days now and had pulled an impressive amount of gold from the mine, but Miguel Peralta was beginning to grow anxious. These lands were dangerous, and the local Apache tribes were not known to be particularly welcoming to visitors. Several of their mules had already been slain by the Native Americans, and Peralta was concerned that, soon, the direction of the attacks would shift towards his men. After several days of heightening tensions and increasingly perilous encounters with the natives, Peralta finally decided that it was time for he and his men to get out. He hastily ordered for their camp to be packed, and before long, Peralta and his men were heading due west as quickly as their load of gold and supplies allowed them to. But as they continued on, Peralta began to notice more and more movement in the landscape around them. Rustling bushes, figures darting between rocks. Their foes were getting closer, and they were increasing in numbers. Realizing the imminent danger, Peralta ordered his men to pick up the pace. But it was too late. Finally, the Apache made their move. All at once, hundreds of arrows and lances came flying at the party of miners from what seemed like nowhere. The men and their mules tripped over rocks and each other as they stumbled their way down the mountain. Some attempted to scatter, but were quickly picked off by the expert marksmen lurking just out of sight. As he watched his men's futile attempts to flee down the mountain, Peralta came to the morbid realization that they were doomed. And in his final seconds, he managed to pull his two young sons aside and conceal them in a bush. He told them to wait there, away from the onslaught of arrows, to be silent and not to leave the hiding spot until they were sure that the Apache had moved on. And then he returned to the fray. The boys huddled together in the bush as the slaughter continued and eventually ended. They waited, peering through the brush to ensure that their attackers were gone. And finally, when the coast was clear, they crept out and escaped, leaving behind them their dead father, all of his men, and the gold that they had died for. The boys ran, leaving the scene of the terrible slaughter as quickly as their legs would carry them. But little did they know that they would never truly be able to escape from the horrible massacre, that eventually it would be immortalized as legend, and the world would soon set out on an impassioned mission to find the mine that the boys wanted nothing but to forget. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game.
Hello there, everyone. I am PJ, and you are listening to Simply Strange. Welcome, and I'm glad you stopped by. So this story is a little bit different than the types of stories that I would normally cover. It's not really that spooky. There's no ghosts or vampires or cannibals or anything like that. But there is a pretty mysterious lost gold mine, and I think that's pretty neat. I had a lot of fun with this episode. I think it's a really interesting story, and I hope that you enjoy it also. So without further ado, this is the story of the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. In the late 1880s, an old man lived in a little adobe hut on the eastern outskirts of a small western town, known as Phoenix, Arizona. This man had a bit of an odd reputation there in Phoenix. Some 30 years or so ago, he had wandered into town from the desert, with few possessions beyond a mule packing a meager assortment of supplies. After settling there, the man typically kept to himself. And when the people of Phoenix did see him, he was usually unshaven and disheveled and would often be heard muttering to himself. His name was Jacob Waltz, but people often referred to him as the Dutchman. Dutchman, in this case, being a botched interpretation of the German word Deutsch, meaning German. So he was a German immigrant, not Dutch. As time went on, the man began to be seen more and more often at the local saloons, where his quiet demeanor would often dissolve away not too long after drink would hit his lips. He would become loud and somewhat boastful, often ranting about his secret gold mine tucked away in the nearby superstition mountains. The mysterious man continued on like this for many years, and according to some versions of the story, he did, in fact, disappear occasionally, only to return with an impressive new supply of gold. But Jacob Waltz lived a solitary life. He had no one who was close to him, and as a result, the authenticity of his purported gold mine remained a mystery. That is, until he began to be softened by time and old age. In his later years, the owner of a local sweet shop, a woman by the name of Julia Thomas, befriended Jacob. Over time, the two began to grow close, until, in 1891, a series of exceptionally heavy rainfalls flooded the river that Jacob's home sat along, giving the aging man pneumonia. Given that Jacob's relationship with Julia was his closest with anyone in town, taking care of the ailing man became a task that fell upon her. And she performed valiantly, doing everything in her power to bring him back to health. Often, he seemed to be making forward strides. But as time went on, his sickness wore down on him until, in the autumn of 1891, it finally became clear that Jacob was not going to survive the sickness. And, on his deathbed, Jacob revealed something that he had never told anyone. A secret that he had been keeping for over 30 years. The location of his hidden gold mine. 
In his final moments, Jacob told Julia everything. As the story goes, one evening in the early 1860s, Jacob Waltz and his friend Jacob Weiser, a fellow German, were in a small watering hole in Sonora, Mexico, watching a card game being played by some locals. Suddenly, a fight broke out between the dealer and one of the patrons. The patron stood up, knocking his chair to the floor and accused the dealer of rigging the game. A small skirmish broke out that ended when the dealer whipped his pistol out of its holster and suddenly the indignant gambler found himself staring down the barrel of the dealer's derringer. The two Germans had been watching the game from the sidelines, and they could see that his accuser was correct. The dealer had been rigging the game, so they leapt to the man's aid. Jacob Waltz pistol-whipped the dealer, dispatching him immediately, and together Jacob Waltz and Jacob Weiser helped the man out of the cantina and to his nearby home. The man, as it turns out, had sustained some minor injuries during the fray, so Waltz and Weiser stuck around for the next couple of days to help patch him up. Eventually, the Mexican man's wound healed, and he wished to repay the Germans, but he had little to give them from a monetary standpoint. However, something that he did have was a mine. He told the two men a story of a mine that his family used to run, far away to the north in Arizona's Superstition Mountains. He explained to them that eventually the Americans assumed control of the land and that his family was forced away, but he was sure that the mine was still there. And he proposed that, as a payment for rescuing him, he and the two Germans find the mine and split the gold. The Germans agreed. They, as recently naturalized American citizens, would be legally allowed to claim the mine, a feat that their newfound Mexican friend had been unable to do. So, after a few days' rest and undergoing the necessary preparations, the three men set out. The journey through the desert was long and difficult, and filled with doubt as to whether they would ever actually find this alleged mine filled with a vast wealth of gold. But in about a week's time, the party did manage to find the mine, and as the story goes, it was an exceptionally rich vein. Tucked away alongside a massive rocky hill, the mine held more than enough gold to last the three men a lifetime, and then several more after. The excited Germans immediately set to work, chipping away sizable nuggets of gold with the butt of their hammers. The next few days went by without issue as the men continued to chip away at the gold, amassing an impressive collection. But all the while, the Mexican man seemed preoccupied, anxious even. He would constantly check over his shoulder and glance around at the rocks and mountains, after a couple of days' work, he announced that he was satisfied with his share of the gold, and that the Germans could now have the mine as their own. But before he left, he did leave the two men with one final message. He told the Germans to be careful and to remain vigilant, that sometimes dangerous Indians passed through these lands, and he warned them that if they were spotted, it could mean their deaths. And then, the man left. The days continued to come and go, 
and the two Germans continued their work. Yet, the seemingly impossible mine still had vast amounts of gold ripe for the taking. Eventually, their supplies began to dwindle, and it was determined that Waltz would take a mule and go to the nearest settlement to replenish their supplies. So, he did. But what neither man knew was that their unimaginably good fortunes were about to be turned upside down. Waltz was met with a number of delays on his journey and had difficulty finding the necessary supplies. It took him several days to return to their camp. And when he did, he was greeted with a sight of pure horror. All of their animals were gone, and the camp had been ransacked. Supplies, cookware, and bedding were scattered all across the sand. And in the middle of it all, lying motionless atop their burnt-out campfire, was his companion, Jacob Weiser. Immediately assuming that they had been paid a visit by the Indians that their Mexican companion had warned them about, Jacob Waltz panicked. He wasted no time in grabbing a few sacks of gold, and then he rode back out of the desert as fast as his mule could carry him. What neither man could possibly have known as they were setting out in search of this hidden gold mine was that they were writing their own legend. One that would long outlive them. A mysterious tale that would incite superstition and mystery for years to come, and ultimately become a catalyst for dozens of tragedies. Now, to be fair, much of the story of Jacob Waltz is conjecture. Being the recluse that he was, there are very few people able to actually corroborate his story. But we do know that he existed. He was likely born in Württemberg, Germany in 1810, and citizenship documents show that he immigrated to the United States sometime in the late 1830s. He eventually made his way to Mississippi, where he lived for a period before moving west in hopes of finding wealth as a gold miner. We know that for many years he traveled across California and Arizona, working in various mining outfits, but never, officially anyway, achieving any significant success. And then he eventually settled into a small house on a homestead outside of Phoenix. Yet, as the story goes, the few who did know him assert that he claimed possession of a rich gold mine, deep in the Superstition Mountains. And after Waltz's death, these stories grew and morphed into the legend that we have today. It's difficult to say whether the Lost Dutchman's Mine truly exists or not, but really that's not the point. The truly fascinating thing about the Lost Dutchman's Mine is not the mine itself, but instead is the dark, deadly cloud that seems to loom over those who seek it. As it turns out, Jacob Weiser would not be the last person to die at the hands of the hidden mine. Over the years, many others would seek out the legendary treasure trove, and often would be faced with disastrous consequences. Perhaps the most well-known example of this, and the one that truly thrust the Lost Dutchman's mine into infamy, is the story of Adolf Ruth. By the 1830s, stories of the Lost Dutchman's mine 
were being printed in newspapers all across the country, sparking the imagination of all who read them. And for some, instilling hope that there may still be a secret treasure trove hidden in the harsh lands to the west. One such person was Adolf Ruth. After coming into possession of a map supposedly leading to the lost Peralta mine, he noticed that it had a striking similarity to another map, an old newspaper clipping believed to show the location of the lost mine of Jacob Waltz. And understandably, Ruth came to the conclusion that the Peralta mine and the Lost Dutchman's mine were one and the same, and that somewhere down the line, the Peralta mine had become the mine belonging to Jacob Waltz. This discovery invigorated Ruth, and at his first opportunity, he made a trip all the way across the country to seek out the lost treasure that he believed he had a map to. On June 18th of 1931, Adolf Ruth arranged to be dropped off in a remote part of the Superstition Mountains, near where the Lost Dutchman Mine was alleged to be located. Now, Adolf Ruth was not exactly set up for success in this endeavor. The journey would take him through deadly, treacherous terrain, and at 66 years old, and requiring the assistance of a cane to walk due to lingering effects of a surgically repaired hip, Adolf was far past his prime. It was a scorching hot Arizona summer, he had absolutely no familiarity with the area, and he was armed with an old treasure map, aided by a topographic map, a combination that was vague at best and useless at worst. The odds were stacked against him from the beginning, and unfortunately, when he set off into the Superstition Mountains in search of the lost gold mine of Jacob Waltz, he was doomed to never return. Six months later, in December of 1931, his skull was located in the mountains. And to the surprise and fascination of many, it was found with two large holes in it, which led many to believe that the unfortunate man had been shot, possibly over possession of his map to the lost Dutchman's mine. Then, a month after his skull was found, the rest of Adolf Ruth's remains were located, about three quarters of a mile away along with the remnants of his campsite. While many of the bones had been scattered about by scavengers, there was enough there to confirm that the body was, in fact, his. Along with his remains were an assortment of supplies and equipment, an empty thermos, a pistol, his checkbook, and mining tools. And, interestingly enough, the supposed map leading to the mine was nowhere to be found. However, there was one final piece of evidence found that made the story even more fascinating. Tucked away in Ruth's checkbook, investigators found a note. And in this note, Ruth asserted that he had found the riches of the lost mine, and he even went so far as to leave detailed instructions on how to find it. But then, in an anticlimactic twist that seems perfectly fitting for the elusive mine, Investigators who followed the instructions were unable to find any such cave filled with gold. The discovery of Adolf Ruth's body and ensuing details sparked a media frenzy, and before too long, stories were being printed all across the country describing the murder of a hapless treasure hunter with a map to a lost gold mine. It was around this time that, aided by the new publicity that the lost mine was getting, the story of Miguel Peralta surfaced and somehow inserted itself into the lore of Jacob Waltz's mine as a sort of prequel, 
According to the legend, the Peralta Mine and the Lost Dutchman Mine are one and the same, and the Peralta Group were merely another victim of whatever curse it was that seemed to be laying over the mine. But that being said, there is little evidence to substantiate that. In fact, the records that we do have point to Miguel Peralta's mine having been located in Southern California, not Arizona. But whatever the case, as the tale of the Lost Dutchman's mine grew and evolved, Miguel Peralta became an integral part of the story. All of this served to amplify the allure of the Lost Dutchman's mine. In regard to Adolf Ruth, on the other hand, while investigators eventually declared that they did not believe there was any evidence of foul play, and that he had simply died of dehydration after getting lost in the brutal desert, it ultimately didn't matter. Fascination with the cursed, lost mine of Jacob Waltz soared to new heights, and the renewed interest spurred even more attempts to find it. In 1945, a book titled Thunder God's Gold was released by Barry Storm, and in it, Barry detailed his own unsuccessful attempt at locating the Lost Dutchman's Mine. One of the most interesting things to be added by his work was a startling allegation that he was actually shot at during his search. He claimed that he narrowly escaped with his life as bullets flew past, apparently being fired by a sniper tucked away in the mountains to whom he pinned the nickname Mr. X. This development is of particular interest if you couple it with the circumstances of Adolf Ruth's death and the bullet-like holes that were found in his skull. Barry Storm made the obvious connection here and alleged that his Mr. X was the culprit behind what he claimed was the murder of Adolf Ruth. Whatever the case, the vicious superstition mountains and their cursed mine were to waste no time in claiming their next victim. On June 21st of 1947, a man by the name of James Cravey took his turn at attempting to find the Lost Dutchman mine after, oddly enough, having a dream in which he found a gold mine. And after recalling the dream, eventually came to the belief that the mine that he saw was that of Jacob Waltz and he recalled the details of it so clearly that he believed he could find it. So he made arrangements to be dropped off in the middle of the Superstition Mountains, and about a month later, he set off. And just like Adolf Ruth before him, James Cravey was never to be seen alive again. When, after being gone for nearly two weeks, James had still not returned home, his neighbors began to worry and ultimately alerted the authorities, initiating a search and rescue operation. A search and rescue operation that was eventually called off after two weeks of unsuccessfully scouring the mountains both by land and by air. It wasn't until seven months later, in February of 1948, that the missing treasure hunter's body was eventually found, about a mile southeast of Weaver's Needle. Strangely, while his skeleton was found, his skull, on the other hand, was not. In late 1961, another notable attempt was made to find the Lost Dutchman's Mine, this time by George Mueller. And this time around, things went a little bit differently. George set out on his own and returned not too long after, boasting to his friends in the Phoenix area that he had found the treasure. 
and he set to work organizing a group to join him in returning to the lost mine in order to collect the gold, which he said was near Weaver's Needle. However, in a turn of events that is all too familiar throughout the history of the Lost Dutchman's Mine, less than two weeks later, on January 1st, 1962, George Mueller died of a heart attack, and the location of the mine was once again lost. Despite the inherent danger of the barren landscape and the bizarre deadly curse that seems to smother anyone who seeks out the Lost Dutchman's Mine, it has continued to inspire ambitious explorers and treasure hunters, even into the 21st century. In 2009, Jesse Capen of Denver, Colorado disappeared while searching for the lost mine, and his body was not found until three years later, in November of 2012. In 2010, a group of three would-be miners disappeared while hunting for the mine, and they too were found dead some six months later. The Lost Dutchman's gold mine has been a source of continuous fascination ever since it forced its way into the public eye in the 1930s. Whether the deaths that it always seems to leave in its wake truly are the result of a curse lying over the mysterious mine, or are just the results of bad luck, inexperience, and harsh conditions, one thing is certain. The Lost Dutchman's gold mine has made a tremendous impact on the region, and has captured the hearts and minds of countless people. As for whether or not the mine truly exists, as long as the story persists, people will continue to seek it out. But it seems that the superstition mountains are endlessly effective at hiding their secrets, and I see no reason why anything would change now. And that is a wrap, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode. As always, you can follow the show on social media for updates on what's going on. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Just search Simply Strange and you'll find it. If you enjoy this show, please help spread the word. Maybe tell a friend or six about it to help get some more ears pointed in this direction. I would really appreciate it. And if you really, really enjoy the show, you can also help by supporting it on Patreon. Even a dollar per month goes a really long way to helping me pay for the hosting and the website and everything that goes into helping to keep the lights on over here. And there's also some neat rewards on there too, if you're into that kind of thing. If anyone would like to do any further reading on this story, I would definitely recommend the book Tales of the Superstitions by Robert Blair. That was one of the main sources that I used for this episode, and it's a really great read. A lot of books that I read as sources for this show are kind of a test of willpower to push through. And this one I really enjoyed, though, so check that out if you're interested and finally, Simply Strange will be back in two weeks with another spooky episode for you. And until then, here's another outstanding podcast for you to binge, Murder and Such. My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such. 
a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye.